is it possible to have a better conversation about balancing our commitments to science and Christian faith? Greg Kutsona is a lecturer in Comparative Religion and Humanities at California State University, Chico, and co-director of the nonprofit organization Science for the Church. In this episode, I talk with Greg about his research into the ever-present conflict between science and religion and how this tension is problematic in the faith formation of emerging adults. We talk about his recent book, Mere Science and Christian Faith, Bridging the Divide with Emerging Adults, in which Greg offers a vision for how integration is possible to create a science-friendly faith. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So, Greg, thank you for joining me today. I know that we're both doing this from our homes as uh, the pandemic is going on. I'm grateful that you took the time to talk with me today. Thanks for being here. I'm really thankful to be here. This is great. So you've been deeply engaged in the conversation about science and Christian faith for a couple of decades now. I'd love for the listeners just to hear your story of how you discovered this as being part of your calling. Why do you do this work? Why is this important? For me, it comes out of the way that I came to be a Christian. So I grew up uh, in an environment that was uh, what we would today call the nuns. Those who, when asked, what is your religious affiliation, say, none of the above. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, was not a Christian until my first year at UC Berkeley. So that should almost sound like a punchline. <laughs> Go to Cal and become a Christian. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's an odd story, but what that does for me is it puts my faith right there in the early part of what we now call emerging adulthood. And I think we'll get to that later. But that means that there were two parts of becoming a Christian and my early formation that were really significant. The first was that overall the church was uh, science positive. And so as I was beginning to understand what it meant to follow Jesus, I uh, was also learning that from people like Earl Palmer, who was a longtime trustee at Princeton Seminary for that connection, Mark Laberton, who was my Mm -hmm. college pastor. They were giving a very Mm science-friendly, culture-friendly, engaging, culture-engaging kind of faith. They were helping me learn that. So that side was very positive. But then I had these experiences at Berkeley, uh, which I, I love Berkeley, but I did have a kind of experience of how can you put together being a thoughtful person and be a person of religious faith. And one of those moments came when I had been a, I had been a believer, uh, a Christian believer for about a year, I think. And I was having dinner with my parents and I had invited one of my favorite comparative literature professors. Her name is Friedrika Hassauer. And she uh, is a German-speaking academic that was visiting Cal, and uh, we were talking over burgers at this restaurant called Upstart and Crow in Berkeley, where there were um, books and uh, burgers and all kinds of stuff. And I was in the middle of my burger, and I kind of made a broad statement about, you know, hey, uh, not hey, but I, I believe in God at some level. And uh, Dr. Hassauer, who was having a wonderful conversation with my parents, and I looked at me, and just the tone changed, and she said how can you believe in God after human Kant? And it was the sense that, (laughs) you know, that if you were to take in the scientifically engaged philosophy of uh, David Hume and Immanuel Kant, it would be impossible to believe in God. And so there was always that challenge. So I had the, the kind of science and faith 
affirming side in my Christian life and the science and mm-hmm. not affirming faith in my academic side as I was growing up in faith. And uh, I really wanted to um, figure a way to reconcile those and to learn from the challenges, but also to see how can I bring these together. That's great. In your book, Mere Science and Christian Faith, you, you mention a little bit about who you are and how you come at this conversation, that you don't come at it as a scientist. Can you talk about that just for a little bit so people understand that? Absolutely. This conversation of theology and science or faith and science or religion and science, however we put that in, to apologize it, has, has really been predominantly scientists talking about their faith. Like Francis Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health, is one of the leading people in bringing together faith and science. Um, and I'm coming from the perspective of being a, a trained theologian. So uh, I did my Master of Divinity at Princeton Seminary, and uh, I did a PhD in science and theology. And I have always been interested in what are the contributions that science makes to uh, theology and to practical ministry in the church so I'm interested in how can you retain that, you know, Apostles' Creed kind of confessional faith that I hold to and engage with science. Sometimes science challenges um, our faith, but actually I found more often than not, it, it strengthens. Um, it's like reading, as people have said, the book of nature alongside the book of scripture with one author who is God. So when I come to this conversation, it's really as a person interested in the theological side, also the pastoral side, um, since I served as a pastor for 18 years, and that brings him a different angle for people. Um, I, w- I would just say that one of the first moments I really took this in was in my, uh, I think it was Introduction to Philosophy that Diogenes Allen taught at uh, Princeton Seminary, and I remember he was so engaged in the questions of science, and I was uh, had a study partner, John Bowen, and John and I were talking about uh, faith and philosophy and uh, Diogenes Allen's class. And I was like, John, why is, why is Dr. Allen so concerned with this? And he said, well, it's that science gives such precision to what we know, and it's seen as such a vehicle of truth. He's trying to help us see that Christian faith can be as rigorous in uh, finding truth and in its conclusions. And so that's very much the side that I was trained in at Princeton, and that then continued from those studies on. Uh, it's how do you do this theological work, and how do you have it science-engaged? When we read the news, read the literature, or move about in different circles, it's very easy to pick up on the tension between science and Christian faith, or at least a tension between people who would claim science as their way of thinking and those who are people of Christian faith. So the tension may be sometimes more between the people than than the things themselves. But many, many people think the two are at odds with one another. I was a youth pastor for many years. I had this conversation multiple times with young people. But there was a time in history when this was not necessarily the case. Can you give me a sprint through sort of church history of this conversation? How did we get to where we are today with this tension between these two? It's a really important history to, I think, grasp as we think about the relationship of science and faith today. And so I will give you like the sprint. I love that because there are people who have done wonderful histories of the uh, of Christian faith and science. I think the place to begin is with the scientific revolution. And you could date that, you know, with uh, the with Copernicus and Galileo in the 1500s and 1600s, right? Um, and 
almost every major thinker of the scientific revolution that happened in Europe were Christians, were people of the church. So Galileo was a committed Catholic throughout his life, and he actually felt that what he was doing was helping the Catholic faith, which is the faith that he, you know, confessed in uh, and through, making it more viable for his time. Uh, that's why he taught the the sun-centered universe. So almost all the history of the scientific revolution has been with Christian thinkers. And we can, what really shifted, as I've done some historical work on this and read other thinkers in this, seems to be around the, you know, in the 1800s, where a real big, a really big shift happens. And one of the plot points is in 1834, William Hewell coined the term scientist. And that in itself isn't that important, except that um, formally the idea of science was for any kind of, for any form of knowledge. And it was, um, you know, there was the science of religion, there was the science of theology, et cetera. And then the science that we call today, uh, you know, natural science was actually natural philosophy, which could often include reflection on God and uh, philosophical reflection on the natural Mm -hmm. world. So what that Mm -hmm. signaled was there was a spinning off of what we would think of as science today, again, primarily thinking often of natural science as different from other things. So now I'm going to make a step back. So the great um, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, great Reformed theologian, Puritan theologian, uh, when he was talking about science and faith, it was natural for him. People listened to him, you know, in the Puritan era. When Charles Hodge was doing that, as a person in the late 1800s who knew science very well, he was being criticized by even another um, evangelical, Asa Gray, uh, for talking about science, and certainly by other people, because theologians weren't seen as people who should talk about science. So there's this spinning off of different realms of uh, knowledge and uh, you know competencies, and science was becoming more specialized in the 1800s. So then you get to 1859, the publication of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin and the development of the theory of evolution through natural selection, which I'll just put a side note in, uh, was promoted by the leading evangelical in science of the day, Asa Gray at Harvard, whom I just mentioned. So it's not like there was this immediate reaction against Darwin, um, even though, of course, Hodge had his serious questions about it. So when that comes in, then you see probably the last entry in a major scientific text of God or creator. I mean, we just don't see that very much anymore. There was a, a way that the idea of natural philosophy had really been left aside and science, qua science, was really in its heyday. And then toward the late 1800s, you have this whole development of what's called the conflict thesis with Andrew Dixon White um, and others uh, and who wanted to say, well, there's always been this conflict between science and religion. And they kind of backloaded the history, made Galileo a person of science against religion when it really wasn't that, uh, did that, you know, like, like the philosophes did in the French Enlightenment and said, well, boy, science and religion have always been at odds. Um, so in this late 1800s, post-Darwin, you see this move to say, well, science and religion are at odds. And that becomes really significant as uh, we get into the modern, fundamentalist modernist split in the early 1900s, of course, which Princeton Seminary played a huge part. And just to say that modernist theology was seen as pro-science and fundamentalist theology was seen as anti-science, even though most people who wrote the fundamentals uh, in 1905 to I think it was 1915, most of those who wrote that fundamental document for the fundamentalist movement 
actually were old earth creationists who accepted a long period of development for the earth. But by the time we get to the Scopes trial in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee, and it's seen to be a conflict between the Bible and evolutionary science, we really see this cultural divide occurring. So that in my view, it wasn't until Ian Barber's book, Issues in Science and Religion in 1965, when you begin to see more of a reconciling work between Christian faith and science, you know, what I would hold to as an Orthodox Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed Christian faith with mainstream science uh, are, are well represented. And uh, so I think we're in a little bit different era from where we were about 150 years ago, which, which is really great. Yeah, it is good. I wonder if what with some pastors today, if they don't uh, resonate with some of the folks you're talking about in the 1800s who feel like as science became more specialist, that they don't necessarily know enough to be talking about. And so it becomes an error of omission, just, just not talking about it because they feel they don't have the language for it. I think that's absolutely right. One of your recent books, which I mentioned before, Mere Science and Christian Faith, which is one of the things I want to talk about, what you focused on is the role that this tension plays in the faith formation um, of emerging adults or those that today we would say identify as when they asked what religion are they, they say none. Would you just explain like how you describe who is an emerging adult and then why is this uh, tension problematic for these folks? That's a great question, because it's something I've so deeply concerned with. Uh, in, in the 18 years that I served as a pastor, it was always with emerging adults, or uh, which includes college students and post-college students, 18 to 30-year-olds. And as I mentioned earlier, I became a Christian at age 18. So like, this is just such an important part of uh, how I see Christian faith. It was Jeffrey Arnett in the year 2000, a psychologist that came up with the idea of emerging adults. And there's you know, much more in, in my book, but it's certainly in other texts as well about what this means. Essentially, it's a sociological category. And I mentioned this because I did an a interview on the book uh, with our local national public radio station. And the interviewer said, emerging adults, why aren't they just adults, Greg? <laughs> you know, for goodness sake. That doesn't sound very, very helpful and, and pleasant or friendly or whatever. But the idea is that there were five markers that defined adulthood sociologically or have and continue to define it. The two biggest ones are having a family, um, sorry, getting married and having a family. And those marks are being delayed much longer. So, you know, part of it is the economic dislocation that occurred in the Great Recession, and it's occurring again now with the, the pandemic. Part of it is just different views about marriage and, and frankly, whether people will want to get married at all. But that's that's such a big question. I'll leave that aside. But just to say, there's this period that people call, you know, emerging adulthood, which is being kind of in between, in between adolescence, being in a family, and then you might say being with a family. And so that gives a lot more flexibility to how one perceives oneself. And, and I'll just put a little plug in for church life in that that's a bigger category. And the average age of marriage is around 26 for women and 28 for men. Um, this is a challenge to churches because a lot of churches are programmed for being either in a family or with a family. And the church I served in Manhattan, Fifth Avenue Press, had 150 young adults coming uh, each year as new members. So it was fun to be part of how do you figure out a church that 
isn't programmed around uh, traditional models. So when you get that connected then with faith and science, it means that a lot of the things that have defined the way we understand faith are not the same for 18 to 30 year olds, for emerging adults. And part of that also is within this period for the millennials and Gen Z, which are, uh, you know, the emerging college students born after 1996, is the insertion of the cell phone, the smartphone particularly. So there's so much more information that this generation has. And when they look at faith and science, A, they're much more amenable to technology and science, but B, there's a lot more inputs they've had. They're much less connected with the church to make those decisions about what religion is. And this means that the relationship between faith and science is a a, a much more active, pluralistic uh, relationship. But I, I think I, could, I would summarize it in two stories, um, because that's a lot of the abstract discussion. But let's see if these two stories anchor it and what questions they leave. One was a conversation with Giovanni, uh, who I was doing an interview with, an hour-long interview on faith, about faith and science. He's one of my students at California State University, Chico. And he said to me, yes, I think both faith and science are important, and they're both, they both make sense. But if I have to choose, I'll choose science. And it's the sense that science is the place where there's certainty, where there's evidence, and where there's proof. And I think that's a really significant idea. And then the second one that I think says a lot about this generation comes from, again, one of these interviews I did uh, with a young adult named uh, David. And David evoked this fatigue with culture wars that um, the emerging adult generation has expressed to me and that I've read. And he said this, the best relationship between religion and science is not conflict nor independence, but more dialogue. It's important to talk with people, get their advice, good, have good conversation. He said, be friend, more friendly and open, give it a, some thought, chew on it for a while. And I think that's uh, the way I see it. It's that, uh, and this would be statistically true, about, about 68% of emerging adults will say the best relationship between religion and science is either collaboration or independence. So they either want them not to get in each other's way when unnecessarily, or they want to see how they relate to one another. And I think that's exciting and gives them opportunity for churches, but it also isn't a kind of freeze-dried relationship that um, is just brought uh, to the conversation that's much more fluid, I think, at this yeah. uh, for yeah. emerging adults. Along that same theme, early in the pages of the book, you mentioned a quote from Francis Collins, the um, director of the NIH, that you already mentioned him. In the quote, he says, science and faith can actually be mutually enriching and complementary once their proper domains are understood and respected. And I agree with that. And I think you seem to resonate with that. But can you tell me how you describe or define the, quote, proper domains of science and Christian faith? Absolutely. So you see in this Collins quote, uh, none of the conflict, that would be more like a Richard Dawkins sort of thing. But you see uh, a strong sense of integration that they can mutually enrich and complement one another. But there's also a little bit of the independence that you have to understand their proper domains. And I think you could say it phrase like this, that science studies the natural world and natural causation. Um, this, by the way, I learned from Dr. Allen way, you know, now way back when in my MDiv, that's the glory of science is to keep pushing natural causation. What is the natural world doing? How does it interact? And, and Christian faith, I think, 
you know, above all describes the work of God in the world. Now, I think Christian faith also connects often with the natural world and natural causation. But if we were to talk about theology, you know, like in the purest form, it's God's work. And so we, you know, we don't want to put those two at odds. When science describes how, let's say, the evolutionary process works and shows you that those links make a great deal of sense, we don't have to insert God uh, where those links haven't yet been identified. That's what's called the God of the gaps. Like whatever there's a gap, we got to insert God because what science does, it'll keep working till those gaps are filled. But we can say God works through the natural processes to cause you know this world to to uh, be what it is. And so I think when we understand the domain of science to be talking about the interactions of the natural world and to keep pushing that and to do it in a really rigorous and defined way, then I think as theologians, as pastors, as Christians, we have an ability to see where does God work uh, through and in that natural world that obviously God created. I think the thing that gets people in trouble is when they want to make God a natural cause in the world. You know, like when an embryologist defines what's happening um, for a baby, you know, and, and tells us how the natural causes are working. And then the psalmist says that, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Those things aren't different. You know what I mean? God is working through those processes. Um, even in the scripture, you see this, what's called dual causation. You know, like when Moses uh, splits the waters at Exodus, there's also texts which say a mighty wind came. You know, like, did God actually maybe use a wind to help that dry land happen? I mean, it, it would be really interesting to unfold those. But we can always say that if we understand the natural processes, those are uh, active because God is ultimately working in and through them. You've addressed a little bit about why emerging adults struggle with these questions because it's presented to them as as two opposite and opposing things. Um, and we're getting to the point where we were addressing where they're not necessarily opposite and opposing. In the book, you name a number of things. What's one or two things that you'd like to bring up that will help churches, you know, people who want to have these conversations with, with young adults, with young people? Um, what are some ways that these questions that they have can be answered in a, in a way that doesn't ex- exacerbate the divide. One of the things that we've done uh, with an organization that I just co-founded with uh, a colleague, Drew Rick Miller, the organization is called Science for the Church, is to really bring together the relationships of scientists and people in the, in the pews. I mean, obviously scientists are in the pews. So how do you connect mm-hmm. people who aren't scientists with with scientists of faith, I think is one really good way to help with these conversations. So I think that's a good start is to say, like, what's the context for uh, the conversation and for the questions? I think that's one way that emerging adults can really, you know, connect with, with these topics. I mean, I think we're trying to find a way to uh, make change. And I've been influenced by the work of Jonathan Haidt um, and his theory of change and his theory of how people converge from different sides uh, or the many sides of an issue. And he says relationships are really important, that we trust one another. And so I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing, and this comes out of some research from the Barna group in their book, You Lost Me, which is a study of why uh, emerging adults are leaving out of the back doors of the church and never coming back. And he found that one of the things that of the top six reasons uh, was that the church seemed to think it had all the answers. 
actually another of the top six reasons, by the way, was that the church was seen as being anti-science. So I think it implies two things. One is don't look like, you, you know, as a, as a church leader now, let's be sure we don't think we have all the answers. Let's be open to learning. Let's be open to questions. I think the second is to say, let's bring in the insights of science into the way we understand faith and life. This is back to the quote from David I mentioned earlier about having more conversation and moving away from the culture wars. I think what I'm seeing trending in terms of emerging adults in faith is that um, whenever there's the idea of a culture war playing in, it's just a turnoff overall. And one of the reasons about 40% of this demographic are not affiliating with the church, studies have shown is that there's so much of the culture war. In other words, science is set as against Christian faith. And I think to be science friendly, I think is really engaging for emerging adults. Um, Again, to Barna, uh, almost 50% of youth group kids, so kids in church who are now in the upcoming generation, Gen Z or iGen, almost 50% believe that the science that they're taught in their youth groups is bad science. So that's not very helpful because then they go to college and they don't, they learn science that makes a lot of sense that, uh, you know, you can verify as true and accurate information. And they're like, well, if I learned bad science in the church, did I also learn really, you know, terrible information about things about the Bible and about how to live my life? So I think it's being science friendly that is really helpful in, you know, bringing emerging adults into this conversation in a way that's positive. Tell me how you see the COVID-19 crisis kind of fanning the flames of this tension between science and Christian faith. What are you seeing? I think we're seeing a lot of the same tensions that have been held throughout uh, the last, say, 150 years in the United States of this idea that science is against faith, science is allied with uh, modernity, you know, all the forces that have eroded Christian faith. It's uh, as Daniel Dennett would call it, the universal acid of evolution, et cetera. And then that faith is about retrenching, you know, moving into my private sphere, moving into things that are uh, just my emotions, uh, things that can't be touched by the natural world outside me, just my own private thoughts. And so I think it's a cultural crisis that we're facing. And it was actually Mark Laberton, who was my college pastor, and is now at, you know, President at Fuller, who mentioned this to me when we were talking about this topic, that this just this current COVID crisis brings out all the cultural tensions we've had for so long in our country. I think we probably need to heal that as much as we need to heal just learning more about the actual science of the coronavirus and so on. Yeah. How, how might the current situation be an opportunity for the church to work at this repairing and not exacerbate it and and have emerging adults go see this is why i've left right well there's always an opportunity i think like you said dale with um any kind of crisis like this and i think the opportunity is to demonstrate again an openness to really good information about what is happening with COVID 19. this is where i would say in a church can we bring in uh, voices that uh, engage science? Will that be a helpful path for this? I think there's a sense of we need reasonable voices here because people are, as they often do in crises, coming to the church for spiritual answers. And it's been demonstrated that religious leaders, Christian leaders are very important in how Christians see scientists. So there's a real opportunity, I think, in this 
for people who are leading the church in whatever way they are as pastors or as elders or just as a more informal leader to say, let's take the best we know from science, let's take what we know from our faith, and let's bring those together in a profound way. So I think it's an opportunity. I think it's definitely an opportunity for people to um, invite emerging adults, 18 to 30-year-olds, into this conversation and to find connection points for this important way of what are we learning about the natural world and what are we learning from our faith and how can those two meet at this particular time? Your book, you touch on a lot of the big issues that one would expect when talking about science and, and faith. You talk Big Bang Theory, creationism, intelligent design, what do I do with about Adam and Eve? But you give two chapters to technology. And I want to jump there because the pandemic, in while we're all under these safer at home or shelter in place orders, has pushed churches to use technology in ways they have not before. Now, of course, there are some who've always been using it, but there are many that have not, either not because they either don't have the skill or their members don't want it that way, or maybe there's theological reasons about convictions about community and what it means to break bread together and and all that. There could be many reasons for why they have or have not. But now everybody has, right? And so... They never dreamed of doing online worship or my church has done online, you know, fellowship hours and things like that. And so, again, this is a different opportunity in, in the present moment because of the um, use of technology now from many different Christian traditions. How do you see this going? What's the opportunity? What's at stake? How might this catch the attention of emerging adults in a way that maybe it would not have before? What's some of your reflections on that? What's happening with all of that? Right. Well, I think there are, you know, in the in some of the classic components of church ministry in terms of teaching, in terms of worship, and in terms of outreach, there's real possibilities with technology. If I could just say two things before I get there that I think are really important about this. First of all, I think emerging adults don't really see a difference between science and technology. Um, I think science and technology really come together. And so traditionally, like in the academic study of science and religion, it's been science and technology is sort of the cousin of science. It's like what, what science leads to. But with the advent, you know, back to the smartphone uh, and thus, after, you know, as a result of that, the development of computer technology, artificial intelligence, other uh, technologies like CRISPR, gene editing, the relationship between what is science and what is technology is so much closer. So we really need to engage with technology today. And I would just say that when I teach my undergrads in my science and religion course, and we move to technology, suddenly instead of talking about what is the Big Bang and how does it relate to the doctrine of creation, we talk about, well, how do you use the cell phone or what is artificial intelligence? And you know, you bring in like, I don't know, the matrix, or the student's they connect so deeply, so quickly. It's very intuitive. That's my first point. Like technology is, is really, I put it within the category of science. And, and one of the things we need to bring into this conversation intentionally. The second thing is a brief point that the Christian church has always used technology. If you were to look at uh, the route that Paul took to spread the gospel in the New Testament, that's described in the New Testament, those are the technology of Roman roads that allowed for that, right? We as uh, Reformed Christians in, you know, Princeton Seminary uh, Christians, 
we know that it was the technology of the printing press, which was so significant for the Reformation. So we're all about technology uh, as a history. So we shouldn't, uh, we don't have it in our blood to be anti-technology as people of the Reformation. Um, so those two points I think are important. I would say back to those three things. I think the dis- adult discipleship aspect of the church can really utilize this technology well. And I, I guess I'm just talking about this in a really basic delivery system. You know, uh, we all know about Zoom fatigue. We all know about how um, it can be tiring. And yet, I did a class for a church on faith and science. The church was about 400 members, uh, as I as I know, and. It was a Sunday night class, and 55 people came to that class via Zoom. And I will, I can tell you that those are not the kind of percentage numbers I got out of Fifth Avenue with like, you know, uh, whatever. It wouldn't be the same percentage numbers. So I think there's some real openness. And even more importantly, I have a friend uh, who loves adult education in the church. He has hearing difficulties, and now he can hear because of, you know, video conferencing. Uh, people who... My older congregational members who didn't want to travel at night, I'm now veering away from emerging adults, I recognize that, but who are saying, um, I can hear and I can get to a class. Now, for emerging adults, I think we have an opportunity to uh, talk about topics that really matter to them. So back to my students, like if you do a discussion of artificial intelligence and transhumanism and uh, bring in films, I I know the, the early Matrix is you know, from about the year 1999, but there's a Matrix 4 coming out. We can talk about what does that mean? Terminator never seems to stop. I mean, that's a fascinating look at this. Ex Machina, uh, which uh, really looked at what would it be if we were able to develop uh, strong AI. I mean, all those things, that will engage emerging adults uh, at a really profound level. The second, I think, is, you know, in worship, I think we've all had to see what is worship like and how can that be used with, you know, people for us uh, in the reform tradition who are very much about being physically in the same place, physically co-present. We do worship that isn't like that. And um, this would be more the vernacular side. So, you know, when Luther went out, Martin Luther went out and he wanted to translate the Bible into German, he didn't take the German that was the German of the high uh, learning. He went and he talked to people in the, in, you know, farmers and uh, people who were not the learned to see how, what was the German they actually used. So he learned the vernacular. And I think we need to learn the vernacular. And the vernacular, I think, for many emerging adults is, you know, video. It might be through Instagram. What about TikTok? Maybe TikTok can be used. Somebody will email whether that's possible. I just don't know. But my point being, it's more of a question of articulation. I have a colleague, Dave Navarra, who's at a very tech-friendly church in terms of using tech in the Sacramento area. And he says that you actually start uh, to get people in the front door, what used to be the back of the pews people, now come through you know, a, a Facebook Live worship service. And so even as the church returns to in-person worship, this could be, I think, again, a way of articulating worship that could engage emerging adults. And of course, could use emerging adults in the congregation to help you do it. And then the third part, I think, is caring for the world around us. So again, engaging our emerging adult population who are committed uh, to the ministry of a church to help seniors to know how to use Zoom technology. Of course, with the right kind of COVID-19 uh, you know, restrictions in, in place to you know, help people to use the technology. Um, I think also there's amazing use of technology to care for uh, the kind of outreach that really speaks to 18 to 30-year-olds. So 
I've been hearing about, you know, bringing medical supplies through drones in remote parts of, let's say, countries in Africa that you can't get to very easily. Could we, you know, just as one example of uh, doing something beyond our, our walls, beyond our borders, can we use technology to help with that? Can we um, use some of the technology to create connections with people and the articulation of the gospel that will be outreach um, in terms of the message of faith? So I think there's through teaching, through worship, through that outreach side, whether it's for uh, you know proclamation or for caring for people, I think the, uh, the use of technology is a really powerful tool for for doing what the church is really called to do. As I discovered what the conversation between faith and science could be like for me as a Christian, I discovered how powerful and enriching it could be. And I hope that if anything's come out of this, it's an invitation for the listeners to explore that for themselves. The process and the journey is truly worthwhile. That's great. Thanks. Thanks very much, Greg. Thank you. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sherry Osting. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amara Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.